Well, good morning. When our son was two, his name is Max, he would play in our backyard for hours with his toy lawnmower, you know, one of those that like the bubble lawnmower, he'd had one of those, and he had his sister's long double dutch skipping rope. And he'd play with these two objects for hours. First of all, he would take the skipping rope and he would lay it flat in our yard, and so that laid completely flat in the yard. Then he'd begin collecting it, making one symmetrical loop after another symmetrical loop until the entire rope had been made into one neat symmetrical unit. He was two years old. And when he was done, he would take that large loop of little loops and he would hang it up on our fence. And when he had completed that, he would take the, the, the rope back out, he would lie it out on our yard, and he would continue the process over and over again for hours. Now, I would just sit there and I would watch him. And not only because he was cute, because he was very cute at two years old, uh, but I was amazed at the meticulous way that he would go and complete this task. See, not one loop was ever out of order. Every loop would always match the one that came before it, which was really fascinating to me because this is the exact same process that my husband Skip, his father, uses when he's wrapping up extension cords or the, uh, the hose or even boat ropes. And if you can even believe it, it's the exact same way that Skip's dad goes about cleaning up ropes. Now, I would know about this because the fact is these two of these two men drive me nuts about this meticulous process that they have. In fact, when I'm outside and I'm helping them doing something, they're like insistent that it be done this specific way where each loop matches. I'm somebody that would like just take the garden hose and throw it in the corner. Next time you need to deal with it, you pull it out and you figure it out. But they are so meticulous about their approach, loop after loop after loop, that usually I just go inside and let them do it on their own. But somehow, unbeknownst to us, our two-year-old son had been watching them and he was practicing following them in our backyard completely on his own. It's interesting how easily it is for kids to pick up something without us even realizing that they're doing it. Almost as if it humans, our tendency is to copy the actions of those whom we follow. Well, today we're going to take a look at a story about a type of suffering that many of us will likely never face in this lifetime. It's about a guy named Stephen. He is a leader in the early church, and the Bible tells us that through the power of the Holy Spirit, Stephen has begun performing such great signs and wonders that is causing many people to become followers of Jesus. The church is growing and it's expanding at this rapid rate. But very quickly, there's a problem. Opposition arises. And the Jewish religious leaders, well, they make this plan to stop Stephen from ministering. And they make this idea that they're going to create some false accusations against him. And they say that Stephen is actually speaking against the law of Moses. Now, I want to pause here for a moment. I want to turn back to Luke chapter 2 because Jesus gives us some insight into what is about to happen. See, Jesus was speaking to his disciples about his death, before his death came, and he said this to them. He said, when you are brought to trial in the synagogues and before rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourself or what to say. For the Holy Spirit 
will teach you at that time what needs to be said. Now, interestingly, what Jesus said is exactly about to happen. The Holy Spirit has come upon the believers. Jesus has already died. He's been resurrected. The Holy Spirit has come upon the believers. The church is growing. The gospel is spreading at a rapid rate. And opposition has begun. These religious leaders, they're very angry at Stephen. See, the order that they had enjoyed before was now a bit chaotic. See, the prestige and separation that they enjoyed from being Jewish, the chosen ones, they're feeling threatened as thousands of non-Jews have begun converting and becoming followers of Jesus. And so they want to reestablish order, and so they create this plan that they're going to put a stop to Stephen and all this craziness that has been happening. But we read in Acts 6 something amazing. Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit comes upon Stephen, and the Holy Spirit gives Stephen incredible wisdom to respond to the leaders, and it says it leaves them speechless. They are unable to debate back to Stephen. Well, you can imagine what happens. They just become more furious at the whole situation, even more determined to make Stephen stop in his tracks, have him no longer teach anything, and so we read that what happens is the Bible says they stir up the crowd against Stephen, which is very similar to what they did to Jesus, right? They stirred up the crowd so that they demanded his crucifixion. And then what they do is they bring Stephen before the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin is the highest Jewish court. They have the authority to pronounce judgment on Jewish matters. And of course... If you've ever read the account of Jesus' death, Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin. And what they do is they present these false charges that they have made up against Stephen, and they ask the Sanhedrin to judge him. Well, that's exactly what they did to Jesus, too. And so here's Stephen. He's standing in front of the Sanhedrin court, exactly as Jesus had, and something amazing happens in this moment. The Bible tells us the Holy Spirit comes upon Stephen and his face begins to glow like an angel, it says, so that no one can look anywhere else but at Stephen. All their eyes are drawn to Stephen. And then through the power of the Holy Spirit, Stephen begins to speak the most beautiful telling of God's story. Really, it's, it's such a beautiful telling. God, Stephen talks about Abraham and all the people that God has used up until that day. If you have time this week, I would highly recommend, it would be worth your time to read Acts chapter seven, verses one to 50. It's this beautiful telling of God's story. And you can imagine that as Stephen is telling the story, the believers listening to this eloquent tale of God, well, they're growing encouraged. They're growing inspired. But imagine the people who oppose Stephen. They're growing agitated. They're growing more and more frustrated. And it's at this moment that Stephen turns to his accusers and he gives them a message from God. And this message from God causes a very difficult situation to happen. And so I'm going to invite Rodney Barnes. He's one of our elders. And he's going to read today's text for us today. Reading from Acts chapter 7, verses 51 to Acts chapter 8, verse 3. You stiff-necked people, 
your hearts and ears are uncircumcised. You always resist the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors did before you. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? And you killed those who announced in advance the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed him and murdered him. You received the law at the command of angels, but you didn't keep it. What Stephen said was a blow right to the heart. When they heard it, they gnashed their teeth against him. He, however, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he looked steadily up to heaven. There he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at God's right hand. Look, he said, I can see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at God's right hand. But they yelled at him at the tops of their voices. They blocked their ears and made a concerted dash at him. They bundled him out of the city and stoned him. The witnesses laid down their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. So they stoned Stephen. Lord Jesus, he cried out, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and shouted at the top of his voice, Lord, don't let this sin stand against them. Once he had said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul was giving his consent to Stephen's death. That very day, a great persecution was started against the church in Jerusalem. Everyone except the apostles was scattered through the lands of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul was doing great damage to the church by going from one house to another, dragging off men and women, and throwing them into prison. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Rodney. You know, this is an account of intense suffering and difficulty. The agony, the pain, the suffering that Stephen endured is something that you and I may never experience. But as difficult as this text is, it also contains a great hope for the community that God was reassembling. And while there's probably so much in the text that we could sink our teeth into, I think of Saul, this new villain that showed up. We're going to hear more about him in the next coming weeks. I want to take a look at the theme that seems to weave its way all throughout the Luke and Acts narrative. And it's this idea of suffering. So today I want to look at three themes of suffering. The first one is suffering has a purpose. The second is suffering is a posture. And the third one is suffering comes with a promise. Now, suffering has a purpose. And the truth is that it goes beyond us. It goes way beyond us, the purpose of suffering. The first thing I want us to notice in the text here is that it's clear Stephen is following someone's example. If we turn back to Luke chapter 22 and 23, we would notice significant similarities between the account of Jesus' death and the account 
of Stephen's death. First, both Jesus and Stephen, they're falsely accused. They're brought before the Sanhedrin for judgment. Both Stephen and Jesus experience the presence and the assurance of the Holy Spirit in their most difficult moments. Both Jesus and Stephen are willing to suffer and die for the truth of the message that hope is for all. Then as both of them are being killed, they ask God to show forgiveness to the individuals who are responsible for their deaths. That's a, that's a hard one. And with their last words, both of them boldly declare their faith in God as they offer their spirit into his hands. Friends, just as my son Max followed in his dad's footsteps, Stephen was following in Jesus's footsteps. He was willing to suffer because Jesus had been willing to suffer. Because the truth is that from Jesus's very first breath, he had lived a life of intense suffering. You know, when Jesus was born, his mother Mary is given this prophecy from God. And it goes along these lines that your son Jesus will be great. He will impact the entire world. But it goes on to say, but a sword is going to pierce your heart, Mary. And so starts this life of suffering for Jesus and for his whole family. When the infant Messiah is born, Herod the Great is so threatened that he goes on a hunt to kill Jesus. He orders the execution of every male child that is under the age of two. Thousands of children are murdered in what is known as the massacre of the innocents, all because Herod is zealous to murder Jesus. So Mary and Joseph, they fear for Jesus' life and God warns them in a dream what's going to happen. And so they're forced to leave their home and we read that they live as refugees in Egypt and in Galilee for many, many years. Then as an adult, Jesus, he faces many difficult moments of suffering, doesn't he? We read about them all throughout the Gospels. Everyone is upset at Jesus. He faces suffering. He faces opposition. The majority of society is adamantly opposed to his teachings. They are appalled at Jesus' messages that salvation and inclusion is for all, not just the Jews. They're disgusted by Jesus' choice to associate with people who live on the margins, especially when he chooses to sit down at their tables and share food with them. Doing everything in their power, society would call Jesus names. They would attempt to trick him and humiliate him in front of crowds. They would build false narratives and accusations against him that eventually would lead to his cross. But through Jesus' life, we can see that there is great purpose in suffering because suffering advances the kingdom of God and it brings hope to the world. See, as Jesus suffers, we read throughout Luke and Acts that the community of God begins to reassemble around Jesus. See, people on the margins begin to find that they have value and worth. The boundaries are pushed wide open by Jesus to include not just Jews, but Gentiles and everyone else too. See, courage and boldness begin to grow in Jesus's followers and the disciples that are following Jesus. And these are the people that are going to take Jesus's message of hope to the ends of the world. And of course, when Jesus suffers on the cross, the world is saved 
from an eternity of suffering. Friends, suffering is not something that just happened to Jesus. Jesus chose to suffer because it guaranteed hope for our entire world. In Luke 9, Jesus tries to help his disciples understand this. And he explains to them that he must suffer so that the kingdom of God can advance. He says this, the son of God must suffer many terrible things. He will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, the teachers of the religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. And then Jesus takes this idea of suffering a step further when he invites those followers to embrace suffering with him. He goes on to say this, and if any of you wants to be my follower, well, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, I add in there, if you try to avoid suffering, you will lose your life. But if you give up your life for my sake, then you will save it. See, not only is Jesus willing to suffer, Jesus is calling his followers to become a suffering community. A community that is willing to suffer so that the kingdom of God can continue to advance here on this earth. See, when we read Jesus' words here, we realize that Jesus is a suffering Messiah and he is assembling a community that is willing to suffer. And friends, this is the call that Stephen embraced. Stephen was willing to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and embrace a posture of suffering so that other people could hear the message of hope even if it meant lying down his own life, which leads us to the second thing I want to look at today, and it's this. Suffering is a posture, and this is the hard part, that we are actually called to embrace. What does a suffering posture look like for us in 2024? Well, we know around the world that people are faced with the very real possibility of imprisonment or death for choosing to follow Jesus. When they hear Jesus' invitation to give up their lives, to lay down their preferences and follow Jesus, well, they really have to count the cost before they make their decision. A global worker from a restricted access nation, meaning that they can't speak the name of Jesus, once told me a story of how parents often must refrain from verbally sharing Jesus with their children until their children are at an age where they understand the reality of being martyred for their faith. See, they cannot take the risk of their children speaking the name of Jesus until they understand that the risk of speaking the name of Jesus could get them or their family killed. And I remember the moment that I heard this story, realizing just how privileged my family is. To be able to sit around our table at night with our windows wide open, our neighbors walking by, we can bow our heads, we can thank God for what he has provided for us. I remember just feeling so privileged that we can talk about Jesus in our home. I remember feeling so privileged that I can tell my kids, the Holy Spirit is with you when you leave this house. You are not alone. Friends, we are so, so very blessed so very privileged. But the reality is that suffering looks quite different for different people around this world, doesn't it? But here's the truth. 
as a community that follows Jesus, we're called to suffer because Jesus modeled suffering for us. So what does a posture of a suffering community look like for a follower of Jesus in 2024? Well, if we look at the life of Stephen, two words come to mind for me, and it's these two, sacrifice and community. See, Jesus and Stephen, they were both willing to sacrifice for what they believed. They also both had the opportunity to avoid death. All they simply had to do was say that Jesus was not the Messiah. If they would do that, if they would stop preaching that Jesus was the Messiah, all accusations against them would have stopped. They could have went on with their lives, walked away from the pain. It would have been so easy, so convenient to just to say, hey, he's not the Messiah. Walk away from it all. Yet they chose sacrifice, even though it came with great suffering. And in doing so, they modeled that things that last into eternity are actually worth our present suffering. It's amazing to recognize that Jesus and Stephen chose to put the needs of the community in front of their own personal comforts and preferences. Even though it would mean great personal pain, Jesus chose the cross to save the world. Even though it meant being stoned to death, Stephen willingly stood up to defend the faith to inspire the community that God was reassembling to continue to follow him regardless of what was going to happen, reminding them even with his last breath of who God was, of who he would do, what he would do for them, and what he promised in the future. And so the question for us, as difficult as it is, is as a follower of Jesus, how do I embrace a posture of suffering that is willing to sacrifice? How do we as a reassembled community practice being a suffering community? Well, you know what I think? I think we do it by living out these values, by actually making choices of those values, sacrifice and community. We need to ask ourselves, where in my life would God be calling me to choose sacrifice over convenience? If I look at my life, where would God say, that's an area that you choose convenience and I want you to start choosing sacrifice. Or where can I put the needs of God's community over my personal comforts and my individual preferences? For me, if I'm honest, it's difficult to choose sacrifice and community over my own personal needs. And I'm a pastor. So if it's difficult for me, I'm guessing it might be difficult for you. I find it difficult. Each year, you know what? At this time of year at tax season, as we begin to collect our documents to file our taxes, I find it difficult to open up the letter that comes from the church. And I find it difficult to see that number written on a piece of paper that shows what we've invested into what God is doing here, here at One Church Geo. Now, don't get me wrong, don't hear me wrong. On one hand, I'm incredibly grateful, I'm thrilled to hear so many stories of change and what God is doing in our community, how he's impacting our city, how he's impacting our world, all made possible because I chose to invest in what he was doing. But if I'm honest, it's a difficult practice to give God a tenth of my earnings. I know in reality that everything is his. But when the rest of the world gets to keep that 10%, and I, as a follower of Jesus am asked to invest it in what he's doing, well, that's difficult. It feels like sacrifice. 
It feels like suffering when I consider all the things that could have been mine with that amount of money. It feels unfair because in reality, I'm becoming 10% less wealthy every single year than the rest of my friends who are not followers of Jesus. But here's the thing, friends. Following Jesus means living differently than this world. Because when we choose to suffer for what we believe, this advances God's kingdom in a way that would not be possible without our sacrifices. See, the truth is that investing my finances helps me to lay down my life and advance the kingdom of God. It's a declaration that my life and everything in it is God's, and I'm going to trust him to supply for all of my needs. In the same way, serving with my talents helps me to lay down my life and advance the kingdom of God. It's a declaration that my gifts come from God, and I've been blessed with them to bless the world. Another way I think that we practice this posture of suffering as a reassembled community is by sacrificing our time to advance the kingdom of God. See, giving up time in my week to belong to a community group at my church, choosing to show up not only when I need something, not raising my hand when I need something, but showing up because my community needs my presence, that helps me to lay down my life and advance the kingdom of God. It's a declaration that I am not more important than what God is doing in my community and in his kingdom. See, for a follower of Jesus in 2024, I can think of no better way to embrace a posture of suffering than to willingly lay down my preferences by sacrificing my time, my resources, my talents, my treasures, so that God can use them to advance his kingdom. And as difficult as this practice is, and friends, it's difficult. It's not easy. The most beautiful part of it that I've experienced is that God shows up, doesn't he? And we do not suffer alone. Because suffering comes with a promise, and it has sustained generations. Friends, Jesus was very clear that in this life we are going to face suffering, regardless if we're his followers or not. We're going to suffer. We're humans. We live in a fallen world. But if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, we're actually called to live lives that embrace a posture of suffering. Not just deal with it, not avoid it, but embrace it as we follow Jesus's footsteps, to lay down our lives and become a suffering community so that the world might know who Jesus is, causing the kingdom of God to expand and to grow. And as difficult as suffering can often be, Jesus gave his followers such a beautiful promise to cling onto as we face suffering in his life, especially when we face suffering to advance the kingdom, and it's this. You will not be alone as you suffer. I will send the Holy Spirit and he will be with you. The Greek word for the Holy Spirit is actually paraclete. And it means this, an advocate, a counselor, and a helper. The Holy Spirit is an advocate for us. He's a counselor when we're struggling and he is our helper. This is exactly who Stephen experienced in today's story. The Holy Spirit was when Stephen, with, with Stephen 
when he suffered. Remember, Jesus promises his followers back in Luke, when you are brought to trial, don't worry about how to defend yourself or what to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what needs to be said. For some of us, we need to remember that. We don't need to worry what we will say when people ask us about our faith. The Holy Spirit will lead us in those moments. And then before Jesus ascends into heaven, he assures his followers, I am going to send the Holy Spirit to equip you with power from on high. Um, one of my daughters today came up to me and she was wearing our um, church merch. Uh, the, she had gone to the junior high um, sleepover and she had received this sweater and it, it like had the theme on the back of it and on the front of it was a scripture verse. And she said to me, Mom, I wore this, I wore this sweater to this week in school. I said, oh, because I've noticed that some, sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. I said, oh, and she goes, yeah, some people noticed that there was like something from the Bible on it. I said, oh, I said, what did you say? In my heart, I'll tell you as a mom, I was like, oh, she probably, she probably experienced such a difficult moment and my heart was breaking for her. She said to me, she goes, oh, they said that was cool. Friends, that's the Holy Spirit helping us in those moments where we could feel shame about the gospel, empowering us to share the gospel with other people. Later on, Stephen experiences the Holy Spirit's presence as he stands before the Sanhedrin court, the most important Jewish court of them all, facing false accusations, things that were not true about him. And the Bible says this, no one could stand up against the wisdom that the Holy Spirit gave Stephen as he spoke. Friends, the Holy Spirit gives us wisdom in moments. We should go to the Holy Spirit and say, I don't know what to do. Will you help me? Will you give me the words? Will you show me how I should approach this situation? And then finally, as stones are being thrown at Stephen's body, and as he suffers, suffers such deep physical agony, we read that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit, and he gazed into heaven, and what happened? He saw Jesus. What a gift it was from the Holy Spirit for Stephen to see Jesus in his last moments here on the, earth, on the earth. What reassuring peace Stephen would have felt as his body was broken, that the Holy Spirit was with him. Stephen was never alone in his suffering. And this is the promise that we have as well as followers of Jesus. In Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. And you will go and be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere. And watch this. In Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Which is interesting because immediately following Stephen's death, Luke records Acts 8 verse 1. And a great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem and all of the believers they were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. See, as the believers were scattered, we read that the church grows exponentially, more than anyone could have ever imagined. Friends, Stephen couldn't have possibly known that through his suffering, the kingdom of God would advance at such a rapid rate that it would move into Judea and Samaria and eventually to the ends of the earth, just as Jesus had promised that it would. Just as Stephen couldn't have possibly known the impact of his willingness to suffer, friends, we will likely not know the impact of our lifetime, the reach and the impact 
that suffering can have. But we are promised that like Stephen, if we are willing to embrace suffering, it can result in thousands upon thousands of people, children, families, generations to come, who will hear about Jesus and choose to follow him because we chose to live as a suffering community in 2024 in Toronto, Ontario. Tim Keller once said it like this. He said, suffering is at the very heart of the Christian faith. It is not only the way Jesus became like and redeemed us, but it is one of the main ways that we become like Jesus. And that means that our suffering, despite its painfulness, is also filled with purpose and with usefulness. Friends, there's no way to sugarcoat it, and I wish that I could, but there's no way. If we call ourselves followers of Jesus, we're called to lay down the things that we want to hold close to us, our individual pleasures, our comforts, our hard-earned resources, our given talents, our time, our money. If we want to follow Jesus, we are called to lay those things down and invest them into God's community, and it comes with suffering. It's not easy to give up the things in this life that would make my life easier. But as we lay them down, we become a reassembled community that God has designed us to be. Through our sufferings, through our sacrifices, God is able to take these things and use them to invest into the future benefit of his kingdom and his community. Friends, all he asks is that we follow him, that we follow his example. Just like my two-year-old son, Max, practiced following in his father's footsteps over and over until he became just like him, we're invited to follow Jesus by daily embracing a posture of suffering, just like Jesus did. Let's pray together. God, I thank you. I thank you for the example of Stephen's life. God, he was just a regular individual who was willing to embrace a life of suffering. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, God, we enjoy the benefit of your story reaching our ears and our hearts because Stephen was willing to suffer for you. God, I thank you for the generations of followers. I thank you for the martyrs who have gone before us, making it possible for us in this moment to respond to your message of hope. Jesus, would you help us to walk in your footsteps as we embrace what it looks like to hold a posture of suffering? Would you help One Church T.O. become a suffering community, God, a beautiful representation of people who are willing to sacrifice for your kingdom so that our world might know that you love them. And Jesus, we thank you for sending your spirit. Thank you for the promise and the assurance that we are never alone, God. Even as we suffer, even as we sacrifice, you are always with us, and that brings us great hope. We love you, Father. In your name, amen.